Mind of a Song podcast, we explore the intersection of mental health, musicianship, and resilience. Our episode today explores the mental health diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. Commonly referred to as OCD, it is a mental health disorder in which people have obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions are recurring unwanted thoughts, ideas, or sensations. And often to get rid of these, they feel driven to do something repetitively, which are the compulsions. Common obsessions can be fear of contamination, fear of a loved one being hurt or hurting someone, spiritual or religious fears, hyper-concern with order and something being incomplete, and even small images, sounds, or words being used. Common compulsions are hand-washing and obsessive cleaning, checking on things, strict organization, constant seeking of approval, and internal mental acts such as counting. Although many people without a diagnosis of OCD can experience distressing thoughts at times or repetitive behaviors and preferences, the distinguishing difference is that a diagnosis of OCD means that the obsessions and compulsions impede a person's daily life activities, work, and social interactions. Someone struggling with OCD gets stuck in the repetition and compulsions on a loop for hours on end. And this experience can feel like mental torture. Our guest today is accomplished jazz pianist, Joe Alterman. Jazz legends have referred to Joe as one fine first-class entertainer, an inspiration and a joy to behold. Joe has performed at many world-renowned venues, including the Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, Birdland, and New York's Blue Note, where Alterman has opened many times for Ramsey Lewis. Joe began playing piano as a child, and when he started to struggle with OCD as an early teen, the piano became the one place he felt like he could be himself and let out the stress of dealing with OCD day in and day out. The piano became his safe haven, and his experience with OCD, which he still continues to manage today, has come to positively inform the soul of his music. Please welcome Joe Alterman playing The Upside of Down.
for having me. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. I'm so happy to have you here. So Joe, I'm going to start with what is it in terms of visibility? What makes it important for you to be on the show and to talk about OCD? Like why be here? I have so many people every time I put out an episode that say, how do you get people who want to talk about these things to open up like this? And it's a really, really, really great question. So Curious for you, like, what is it like being here? What is it like talking about OCD for you? And why is it important for you to shed some visibility on the the diagnosis? We're diving right in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, what was really difficult when I was really going through this is that at the time, there really wasn't a lot out there. And I mean, at the time, I remember As Good As It Gets was really popular. So was Monk. And so was The Aviator. So Mm -hmm. As Good As It Gets and Monk made it just feel like OCD was something that it's okay to just poke casual fun at. And the aviator made it, made me feel like I was going to go insane. Also, mm-hmm. at the time, there was, uh, there was not a lot out there. I really wanted to find um, a diary of someone who had been through it or talk to someone who had been through it. I couldn't find any diaries. I found a few books that were actually fiction books written from the perspective of a diary. And that just felt a little weird. The people, I, I was able to, tracked down some people who had been through OCD and who were struggling with it, but they didn't want to talk to me. So to me, it was always very important to me that I would talk to people. And and I guess what I'm getting at with the talking about as good as it gets and the aviator and the way it was really portrayed on the media back then was that it was such a depressing narrative. And it wasn't really, it's not really my narrative. There was, I remember at the time, uh, Oprah was really popular as well. And she would have this really beautiful girl on who had OCD. And um, I understand that I guess people could relate to her because uh, she looked good or something, but her story was so depressing. It was like, I'm, I understand I'm not really going to get over this. And to me, that was just so sad because I realized how many people are watching Oprah and might discover that they have OCD through watching that. And I think they're seeing this person on Oprah as best case scenario. And to me, that's not the best case scenario. So to me, I like speaking out because I do think I have a more hopeful perspective on the whole thing, but I think it's important to speak out because it's usually not portrayed correctly. <laughs> um, totally. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also hearing you say, Joe, that like you literally had no like solid, accurate resources for yourself. If anything, you kind of had ways in which it was portrayed in movies that didn't feel accurate to you or felt hopeless or back then when you had it. And you make a great point because OCD actually used to be Um, underneath like an anxiety disorder and now Mm. the DSM has separated it as its own individual disorder. Really? Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that. Wow. But yeah, I didn't didn't even sort of thought. Mm -hmm. That's wild. And yeah, I mean to me, I didn't even know the terms OCD until I didn't know the word. I didn't know obsessive compulsive disorder. I would literally be on my bus heading to school and I was a big counter. 
and I would be watching everyone else on the bus. And honestly, for a while, I assumed everyone else did the same stuff. And then one day I realized that's not true. <laughs> no, everyone does that. Yeah. And yeah. also, it, it, it's also interesting to Joe, because thinking about like, yeah, you don't know anything, like when you heard the term or actually got a diagnosis, I'm always mindful that that feels like two things. It can either feel scary because now we're like, holy shit, I have this thing. But also mm. the sense of like relief in a way, because it's like, okay, now that we know what it is, maybe there's a mm. path to more support, letting mm. it evolve, letting it heal. Any thoughts when you like, what was it like when you even had a label for it? Let me think, I guess. So I'll st- I'll kind of go back because I'm, I'm going to walk, I'm going to figure out the answer to this with you as I kind of talk yep. through it, if that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, in my practice, I can diagnose. So like my credentials are LPCMHSP, which is licensed professional counselor, mental health service provider. So mm-hmm. when I have clients come see me, I'm able to diagnose in the state of Tennessee, but because I don't take insurance, I don't typically have a reason to, or I don't really have to. Mm-hmm. If my clients are interested in exploring medication, if they see a psychiatrist that I refer them to, they do get a diagnosis because you need that in order to get a, um, uh, a prescription or to kind of see the psychiatrist. Mm. But I'm actually like, I don't diagnose that much f- kind of as I explain, it's like I, sometimes a diagnosis can be helpful and I'm happy to provide that if someone feels like, okay, this label is helpful because it gives me a course of action and that feels really mm. good. Mm-hmm. I also feel like the the flip side of that is adding a label to something. Every single person's experience is so different. And I, I don't love the idea of them feeling boxed in. So yeah. often I kind of purposely don't offer that or I don't feel like it's often necessary because I don't want them to feel like it's this thing that, that they I, are and that they can't move away from. I, I, I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing. And I mean, for me, like, it was a bit of both. Because I, I, for me, like, I mean, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm, you know, cultural, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm Jewish. And, you know, growing up Jewish, we have all these traditions. So for me, totally. everything that was OCD as an early kid... I didn't see it as anything wrong. I saw it as a tradition. Like every night my dad would have a bunch of things that he would, you know, he'd tuck me in a certain way, he'd prop a door in a certain way. And I never saw it as anything weird. He didn't either. Or I don't mean to say weird, but we saw it as like, this is Joe's bedtime tradition. And so for me, I had a lot of those. And they, you know, they didn't bother me. They were actually comforting. And more and more and more of those arose as I got older. And I guess it all kind of came to a, uh, pinnacle. I remember like one night I was in like eighth grade maybe. And I remember I went on a jog. I was a big jogger. And, um, I remember getting to a corner, uh, uh, on the street. And I remember stand stepping on something and it just felt weird. And I remember I just stood there for like three hours, like trying to, it felt like I was trying to fix it. I didn't know what was happening. And so I came home that night, finally, and I had a terrible stomachache, and I didn't know what was going on. Neither did my parents. My mom thought I had like, uh, you know, just she was trying to, you know, give me Pepto-Bismol, things like that. And then we realized it was anxiety. And from there, uh, it's just there more and more of those kinds of things were happening. So, And I was still calling them traditions or whatever. I didn't know what they were. So for me, eventually, you know, everyone has a little OC, I think. Not everyone has the D. Uh, and that. Yeah, and uh, but to me, it, it got to the point where my life was just all the time was these things. And a lot of these things were kind of mental or fixing things. I wasn't really a hand washer, so people weren't really noticing things. And neither were my parents. But I remember it was constant. And I remember one night just being on the computer, you know, how we used to do surfing the web, uh, the World Wide Web. And, uh, really? <laughs> and I remember up. like, totally, yeah. And I remember, you know... Uh, 
being on AOL one night and uh, typing in like all these things that I was doing, like counting or fixing. And, and the word obsessive compulsive disorder came up. So for me, I remember when I saw the words, I remember getting really emotional. I kind of had like a, I, I remember like, you know, kind of burst out crying kind of moment. It was kind of like, oh, this is amazing because this is a thing. This this is, you know, this is actually a thing. Not everyone does this, but it was also, it also freaked me out because it was a thing. And this now I had this thing. I'm not a normal person, or I didn't at the time, did not feel like a normal person. And I will preface this by saying normal is totally overrated, but, uh, but it, it made me feel like, oh, oh, like as if I didn't know already that I wasn't normal. Now I'm really not. And yeah. It's sort of, yeah. It's sort of like validated not being normal, which is scary. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Very, yeah. I love also, Joe, that you bring in the cultural piece. Mm. I'm Jewish as, Jewish as well. And I'm mindful that if you are Jewish, it feels as though tons of like a, a culture of like tons of traditions, which are really beautiful p- traditions, but you're just like, I sort of hear you saying that like it's, it was kind of like normalized in your family. And I will also offer that there are, I feel as though in Judaism, and I can't speak for other religions, but there are definitely a lot of aspects in Judaism that are, um, what's the word? Uh, superstitions. Mm-hmm. So superstitions about like, I know I grew up in a Sephardic synagogue. So when someone says something slightly negative or that could happen, that's bad, you say poo, 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 mm, or yeah. that like, that's like, it's just like a thing, like a thing that you say is like knock on probably similar to like knock on wood or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or I know I'm mindful that for some people, if you are expecting a child, you don't have the baby shower until after the baby's born or like a superstition where you're not supposed to buy anything for the baby or do anything for the baby before it's born. So mm. I feel like Judaism specifically in my experience as a Jewish woman for sure has a lot filled with traditions, superstitions. And so as we think about like the evolution or sort of setting the scene in the environment for your mm. OCD to arise, it makes a lot of sense to me that it would feel more normalized for you in terms of the things with bedtime or lighting the candles every Friday. These are just the things that we do in our home and the things that we do for Joe every night. Totally. Yeah. It was, I mean, we don't often think about why we're doing the things we're doing. We're just, those are the things we got to do. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. (laughs) So take us to the beginning, Joe. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit the first time. So I I guess you kind of brought us in a little bit in terms of like being a runner. And maybe that was a great example of like the first time some sort of like you got fixated on like a sensation. Mm -hmm. But take us from the beginning and curious to hear, um, I, I'm going to read a diary entry um, yeah. after I have you share a little bit in terms of, because mm-hmm. um, I think it's a great reflection of allowing our audience to get in your mind, like to really yeah. understand the gravity of how this was affecting your life and what just a typical nighttime for you would be like. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open it up to you. Awesome. Well, uh Yes. Uh, I mean, I guess I, I kind of spoke to how it, it began. It evolved from these series of nighttime traditions that became more and more. How old and, were you, Joe? Uh, I mean, those tr- things go back to being a baby, you know, yep. honestly. Uh, uh, but then I think I think it really started to get disruptive in my life around the time that I was, let me think, uh, probably seventh grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. I started to notice you know, it just started to be more time consuming doing these things. Um, I don't, I rem- I know for a fact that the first time I felt anxiety was that night when I stood on that corner. Cause that's what the stomach ache was. It wasn't a stomach ache. It was anxiety. Um, 
but I guess you know that really it took a uh, a couple years to really you know get to the worst point. But I'd say like at the you know basically I switched schools, so that was that kind of made things. I think that accelerated things because mm-hmm. we had a our bus ride to school was like an hour. So like I had a lot of time on my hands and mm-hmm. that's when I would do a lot of counting and and it was eighth grade was when I moved to the school and do you think Joe in hindsight that well one I want to offer I just mm. to go back for a second, the having yeah. an having a stomach ache as a response to the anxiety. Such a great example of like I always say so our brain and our body fit together or like work together. Mm. So they're, they're like housed together, right? Cause like mm. our brain sits in our body. So they're always ideally in, in unison or in tandem. Like mm. if you watch a movie or you're watching the notebook and your brain's like, this is sad and you cry, you're having a physical mm. response to an emotional feeling. Mm. Anxiety works in the same way in the sense of like anxiety is your body's physical response to mm. the mental anguish or the fear that you're experiencing. But if you don't mm. even have the vocabulary, which is what you're saying, like, I didn't know what OCD was. I didn't think anxiety would like, I didn't know what it was. You mm-hmm. would just think it's a stomach ache and kids get lots of stomach aches. So even more so, I'm just thinking about some of those variables and factors as to how something could go so long without being addressed. Totally. And Jewish kids with acid reflux get even more stomach aches. There you yes. go. Yeah. That cultural I, piece as well. It's so complex. Yeah. I'm one of those guys, but, uh, uh, I literally just lost my train of thought, but it's well. You were saying that you move schools, which in my mind too, like oh. that's a, like a lowercase t, especially as a teenager. Like new school, mm-hmm. new kids, transitions that produces any kind of level of anxiety in anybody because it's just change. Mm-hmm. It's just like not your normal routine. So mm-hmm. I wonder as that like coincides with the sort of like the um, kind of climate that was already kind of set for you in terms of OCD. It, I imagine it accelerated that for you. Totally, and I mean, I to, for for me, I guess like and for everyone, I mean. To me, I've always looked at OCD as like, I mean, there's a lot of ways I look at it, but one of the ways I look at it is a series of if-then thoughts. So when I look back, it's if I don't do this, then this is going to happen. And a lot of times it was just do this, do this, um, or my anxiety would get really bad, which is exactly what happened that day at the, you know, at the, uh, when I was on a jog. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember, you know, having any consequence if I didn't continue, but I knew I had to continue, but I could not stop. And yeah, I think... Uh, I think the, to me, a lot of the sensation was if I do these things, my anxiety will go away. To me, OCD is is very co- cor- correlates very much with my anxiety. Uh, and, and can I ask Joe in terms mm-hmm. of like the repetition piece? So if it is if then, like take me into mm-hmm. that for a second because it's like okay, if I do this, then I'll feel better, or then this person won't get sick, or that whatever mm-hmm. it could be, right? Like the framework. How did you move forward? And I'm mindful, sometimes it was three hours. Like, do you remember Mm -hmm. what it was that would help you? Because sometimes when I've worked with clients, if we almost, almost the therapeutic relationship in and of itself, like displaces the responsibility of the Mm -hmm. client. So it's almost like Mm -hmm. I find my, I find myself giving my clients permission to do the thing that they feel like they might hurt if they do it. So for example, like Mm -hmm. I almost in a way, like I give them permission to wash their hands two times Mm. and I almost like take the responsibility off of them that like, if someone gets sick, it's not your fault because we created this boundary together. That's just an example Mm. of like what can be helpful, but what Mm. in anything that comes to mind for you in terms of like how, what was it the 30th time or the 300th time? Like Mm. what would disrupt it? Well, there's a few things, I guess like, you know, in terms of the, if then thoughts, the, if, is very, it's usually a very kind of invasive thought that you are embarrassed to have. So like 
say my parents were out to dinner and I'm home alone and I'm, you know, in eighth grade. If I don't do a bunch of things, my parents are going to die before, you know, while they're out. Things like that. Or like I remember, you know, there were certain people at my school that I didn't like and uh, I thought they were jerks. And I remember if I didn't do a certain amount of things, I would become just like those people. So that was, you know, one thing. But in terms of, but that was, I'd say if I'm spending most of my day doing, acting out compulsions, I'd say that only like 20 to 30% of them were the if. Most of them were just do this, do this. So basically what would happen to me is I would get what I called a lucky number at the time. And the number always changed. So say the number was three. Um, so what would happen is I'm taking a test and, and I'm writing, uh, the letter P and, you know, uh, so when you're, you, you know, you, you start at the bottom of the P and you go up and then you curve around and then the, 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 you know, you kind of circle it and say the circle. Yeah. So this, the circle goes a little over the, you know, the other, it's hard to explain, you know, describe the first part. Totally. yeah. Yeah. You like curve it and it goes past the first line that you made. Totally. So what would happen is. Then if my lucky number was three, then I'd have to erase it and rewrite it three times. But what would usually happen is I would mess it up on the third time. This would happen many times. So then I'd have to do it nine times. Then it would just escalate, escalate. And by the time, I mean, there were many times I remember having to to count to 80, 80 times. And that's very hard to keep track. And then I'd lose my, you know, then you'd mm-hmm. lose track and then you had to count to 80, 80 times, 80 times. And then it's just, it's so... Uh, and then to make things trickier was like, you know, especially when I started to get into behavior therapy, and I don't mean to jump ahead at all, but so what happened is like, you know, to, to treat it, you got to like come up with a, a not lucky number, you know? So if, if you're doing everything three times, now I'll do everything four times because that's going to mess with three. But mm-hmm. then I'd start to wonder, is am, am I just fooling myself into thinking four is the combative number or is four really my lucky number now? Mm-hmm. You know, it would mess with you a lot. So like, I remember... Uh, my school days were very much like that, just like erasing and rewriting, erasing and rewriting and counting and counting. Eventually it got to the point where I had to take all my tests orally uh, through, you know, a teacher would read them. Um, but my nighttime routines, you know, school, school is rough, but my nighttime routines were scary <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. because basically what would happen is, I mean, I would take, and I don't know, maybe the journal entry touches on this a little bit. But. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read an excerpt from a journal entry that Joe wrote in April 2004. So this is like in the thick of it. Mm. It now takes me more than four hours to get in bed. Four hours of fixing, touching, balancing, rearranging, hoarding things next to my bed, hiding all the scissors, perfectly placing my cell phone into the charger many times, turning the lights on and off many times looking over and over at one picture of my grandparents, looking at the same picture many more times while blinking, touching every corner in every room, combing my hair excessive times, washing my hands, looking behind every piece of furniture, behind every corner in every room many times, smiling into the mirror many times, opening and closing doors, fixing wrong steps and entering and exiting rooms a certain number of times. Sometimes I get in bed after the four hours of compulsions and my dog comes into the room adjacent to mine. My mind tells me that I have to get up to pet her or else I don't love her. Of course, I get up and pet her and then it takes me four more hours to get back in bed. That was that was that was life. <laughs> yeah, like when yeah. you when you go back to that place, Joe. What what do you feel about that part of you? To me, I mean, it, those are just such difficult. They felt really hopeless. I really felt like I was kind of going going a little crazy. I remember, especially when that movie The Aviator came out, which was around that time. You know, it's about Howard Hughes, the like brilliant but 
really nutty. Uh, and I'm sorry to use these words. Like, I don't know if that's an okay, but, but like, what were, what was like a specific scene that felt scary for you? I'm, I've seen the movie. It's been a really long time. So is there a specific scene that you remember? No, honestly, but I remember the narrative was, you know, people did start to hear more. I, I, I remember hearing more about OCD after that movie came out and it was pretty much the narrative was like, there are two kinds of people who deal with OCD geniuses and crazy people. And I was, mm. I felt like, like I was the crazy person, you know? And I didn't, uh, yeah. So it's, you know, to me, it's, I guess, uh, you know, honestly, as I'm, as it's now, I'm, you know, taking all that in about the, from the journal entry, I guess, you know, I'm really just, uh, it's really amazing to know where I am now, honestly, totally. because I, I remember, you know, to me, the, 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 the savior during that time was music and very specific musicians. And those are people who, you know, helped me feel less crazy at that time. And now they're people who are friends and mentors. One of them like passed away on Sunday this week. Oh, and, uh, but I'm he so was like the person, that. oh no, it's okay. But you know, I was lucky to know him. I mean, especially after he brought me so much, uh, joy and relief and, everything during these difficult times. So, I mean, looking back, it's, it's just, you know, that was really awful and really hard, but it led to something. And, uh, yeah. I think the word, when I, when I read that out loud, like the word that's like so prevalent for me is just like stuck. Oh yeah. That's it. Yeah. It just, just like strapped no and yeah. Like just like so unprogressive. And I often talk to clients about like our goal in therapy. I don't want them to just feel alive like you're mm -hmm. like floating and just like existing. I want mm -hmm. you to thrive and thriving mm -hmm. is not being stuck. It's like looking, thinking about the future, setting some small goals for yourself, like growth movement. When mm -hmm. we're dealing with a mental health disorder, especially something like literally, I think there's so many like literal kind of ways in which OCD plays mm -hmm. into this because you're physically, you know, literally stuck in the compulsions or the obsessions. But yeah, it's like, it's hard to, when you're not growing it, and you're so stuck is a horrible mm -hmm. feeling. It like almost like compromises your soul. Oh, totally. It's, 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 it's honestly, it's, there's like no words for it. It's, it's, yeah. it's the worst feel. I mean, you just, yeah, I guess stuck is the word though. <laughs> there's no yeah. words, but stuck is the word. There's a, a word. I'm sure there's others, but like, yeah, there's yeah. just like rings, rings true for me in terms of stuck. So oh, tell me, me well, also Joe, I want to ask you about like, you know, obviously we talk a lot about shame in terms of mental health, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think the most obvious piece is that with a mental health disorder, it is mental. It's going on in your mind. So often mm. people say, you know, sometimes it would be easier. It would just be the world would at least be able to accommodate my disability or my disorder if if I physically broke my arm or I was in a wheelchair. But with mental mm. health, it's the exact same thing. But a lot of it is suffering in silence. Mm. Because like you said, even having the words to communicate the numbers, the counting, what I'm thinking, like my friends probably think I I'm here, so I'm present, like nothing's wrong. But and mm. a panic attack, counting, these are things that like you can suffer in silence. What was that like for you going through this? And did you share it with anyone? Did you not share with anyone? What was like the suffering in silence piece for you? Mm. Well, I kind in a weird way, uh, I kind of wanted to. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I, I say that meaning that, again, I really wanted to feel normal at that time. And that's like, you know, early teenage years, you know, uh, and so basically I purposely did not tell my friends because at first, eventually I did and they were great. Mm -hmm. um, but when I did not, I didn't because I liked feeling just like one of the guys. Uh, so, so like if you were to talk about it or say something, they might think I'm weird, I'm different. And if I don't say anything, if I just keep it the way things are, I'm normal. This is like, it makes me feel normal. Totally. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah it, and uh, 
Yeah. So I mean, uh, on I mean, on the one hand, uh, that was you know my friends would have been great. They would have been so supportive. I know it, uh, mm-hmm. and they were when I eventually told them. But on the other hand, it made things harder. But in the long run, better. I hate to say it. I know this is you know, but it made things yeah. because basically I'm struggling all day doing obsessions and compulsions. I'm also struggling because I'm faking it around my friends all day, and then I need an outlet at the end of the day when I get home. And that's when the piano became became my me. <laughs> yeah. You know? So tell me about the outlet. Tell tell me about like, I, and I love that. It's like, you're kind of like taking me through the day. I'm sure the second mm. you open your eyes, you're struggling. At school or with your friends, you're struggling, but trying to keep it together, struggling. And then when mm. you get home, you have your outlet. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the outlet. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, uh, I remember I was, I just is not a sidetrack, but this is, this is, this explains the outlet. I remember someone was asking me in some interview about my music a few years ago, like talk about your relationship to music. And I said something, I compared it to having a pet. It's like, it's always excited to see you, you know, Mm -hmm. if you ignore it, it's going to be hard on you. You know, uh, if if I don't touch the piano for a few days, you can tell it's, there's a saying Uh it's, if I don't play for a day, uh, I know it. If I don't play for two days, my, my my fiance knows it. If I don't play for three days, you know it. You know. Yeah, and it's such a part of you. So it's like you have to nurture yeah. it. Is that like a good? Term? You have to nurture it. Yeah, and you got to love it. And you, you it's a, you know having a a gift is an honor and a huge responsibility. Um, I did not realize at the time that I had any sort of gift. But to me, I always saw it as like, you know, how people probably see when they come home to a dog. It's just uh, yes, and so. Um, I, I started piano when I was like three or four. I really hated it, honestly, when I started. And uh, my parents wouldn't let me quit because I had already started. So I was taking classical lessons and always getting in trouble for changing notes. They were saying I was screwing up the piece. But I was what I was really doing is just hearing things a little different. I was improvising. They would say, you're messing it up. I would say, improvising. I didn't know there was any kind of music where you could be encouraged to do that at the time. But basically, um, OCD was kind of like I would just get on the piano and let out like I would not be playing a tune I wouldn't pull up music I wouldn't I just it's kind of like get to the piano and it's like let's see what comes out today so you <laughs> were would, literally like always like improvising always always, all the whole time. always yeah I mean there were times I'd pick out like certain melodies and like play off of that but I was mm-hmm. never like I mean people would say I was playing but I was really just to me that's it was like an emotional outlet you know so and I don't know I mean it was there were really rough times but I don't know I don't know how I would have dealt with it without having that outlet. So I know like not everyone's musical or not everyone has has a gift or whatever, but um, I always encourage people to like let their feelings get out somehow. Totally. And like uh, yeah. obviously I'm biased because I'm a therapist and an art therapist and I'm not a music therapist. Mm. And the, the purpose of the show is not to go line by line and, and explore the music piece. However, mm. I'm mindful that like music, like art, like anything creative – especially specifically for you, I think I wonder if like the improvision piece, because I wonder if you were playing something specific or you were supposed Mm -hmm. to play something specific, would that bring in some of the like hyper fixation? I don't know, but I Mm -hmm. love the idea that like you would improvise and improvising created this safe space for you to like, I'm sure anyone that improvising isn't going to get it right. And sometimes I imagine like happy accidents or happy mistakes happen. So maybe it's similar to like a canvas with paint where you can always go over it or erase it or add to it or come back to it, put it on pause, similar to improvision or with music and improvising. It, it is this both chaotic and like the unknown, but also you're playing. So you're in control. 
Totally. It's, it's, uh, it's, it is chaotic, but it's, it's really empowering. <laughs> it's yeah. really, what's empowering about it? It's really like, you know, you could, you could make music out of anything, you know, mm-hmm. it's like when, you know, someone throws a, a bunch of paint on a canvas. I mean, 100%. they created that and, yep. and, I, and, you know, m- some people might not get it or some people might not like it, but this is not their story. It's this, yours. This is, it's my story. And I felt like I'm being the most me, you know, when I'm on the piano. Yeah. Um, and I think it was really during that time that that became the, that became uh, the thing. <laughs> I and remember, I, I, did, yeah, go ahead. And I mean, this is just a stupid aside, but like to me, like, uh, I mean, I, of course I love jazz music and I love music, but there are times when I'm tired of listening to music and, but I still want to hear something. And then I'll put on like James Taylor. And I remember meeting him one time and just, I don't know how this came out, but I just said something like, I was still living in New York at the time. And I said, I, I did not plan this. This just came out. I just said, Mr. Taylor, like, uh, I wish I could have a dog. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me like, you're nuts. And I said, well, look, I, I live in a seventh floor walk up in New York and I just can't. And, but to me, it's just as comforting to be able to come home and put your music on. And that was like totally the truth. And that's how I feel about music and getting on the piano. It's like, the you know, it's just so special. I think it was, who's the the philosopher? I think it's Nietzsche. I, mm-hmm. I always mispronounce it. He mm-hmm. said like uh, music, I'm paraphrasing, but music is proof that life is not a mistake. <laughs> mm, what does that mean for you? Oh, yeah. Uh, to me, that's... Uh, I totally, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say it honestly better than he did, but I agree with him. There's another one. um, I think it's a Kurt Vonnegut quote. um, And he said, if I should ever die, God forbid, let this be my epitaph. The only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. And again, I'm not, Mm. I'm not getting religious. I'm not really not religious, but I'm a spiritual person. And uh, yeah, to me, I think. Yeah, it kind of feels like, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, not just with OCD, but in the whole world. And it's often like, is this all just an accident? And to me, music is like, nah. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's nah. not. Yeah. So I want to ask you, Joe, about resiliency a little bit. Because mm-hmm. I am always, resiliency in the field of therapy and mental health, it's like something that's always being researched on. Like, mm why some people are born more like is it that some people are born more resilient than others and it's like a gene so some people just are more resilient Mm. than others we know that you can build resiliency if you have maybe more like matriarchal or patriarchal people in your family that have pulled themselves up from their own bootstraps or excelled coming from really difficult circumstances and they model that for you that can help Mm. i mean just like the observation or like the behavior modeling that behavior can help build resilience but we don't know why some people tend to be more resilient than others I'm also interested in this idea of, and we say post-traumatic resilience, after you experience something traumatic, something very difficult, you can have like a spurt or like a growth of resiliency from that experience, which makes a lot of sense. Mm. What is it like for the thing, which is your OCD, that was so abusive, like so the thing that you hated the most, the thing that was controlling every part of your world? Mm to somehow contribute to a part of your world that you couldn't imagine being so fantastic and amazing in like your art. Mm. Well, like I the guess thing that you, I almost want to phrase like the thing that you hated actually ended up in some way, shape or form being something that I don't want to say maybe it's made you better or is it like, how do you go, you know, it's like you go from like hating this thing and having such a 
hateful or spiteful or ugly relationship with it. And then as you grow, you realize actually that thing may have been the thing that saved me. Well, I, yeah, uh, a few things. I mean, I think, uh, uh, first I, rem- I, even when I was going through my hardest times and I was trying to talk to people who were dealing with it or had dealt with it and wouldn't talk to me, I recognized that those people saw this as a waste of time. <laughs> Um, dealing with OCD and having OCD. And I knew that I didn't want it. I didn't want to see that. I knew I had to, I was determined to make something meaningful out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that in terms of me being resilient, the only reason I'm resilient is because I had to be, because I didn't want to be. You know, truthfully, all I wanted to happen was have any medicine work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they never did. I had the worst side effects and I was forced to get into behavior therapy. I didn't want to. Um, so, I think it came out of a necessity that I had Mm -hmm. to, you -hmm. know, uh, but I think true, like, you know, you know, I think, I mean, it's tricky because like, I know I, you know, I, I would tell people to, you know, if someone's listening now who's struggling with deciding if they should tell their friends, I hope they will tell their friends. I don't want this to sound like you shouldn't, but to me, um, you know, getting at, being at the piano on those days when I hadn't told my friends and when I was struggling all day, and the music was such an emotional outlet for me. Uh, you know, now almost twenty, you know, years later, and I'm actually like performing for people who pay to see me, and they say things like "You're soulful" or "You sound like old" or like, which is a compliment in the jazz world. Like, uh, yeah. to me, they only say that, or the only reason anyone feels anything to my music is because of my OCD, because it was an emotional outlet. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to me, I'm like, I am thankful for the experience. I think, uh, honestly, like, uh, when I would get in bed uh, every night, once I got in bed, and <laughs> uh, I would, I had a, like a mixtape of, you know, remember mixed CDs, and, yeah. you know, you can give a definition to your readers of what a CD is, for your listeners, of, of what a CD is at some point. <laughs> I think uh, a lot of my, my my listeners probably know, but yeah, but like, you know, yeah. someone burned it, like, it'd be different tracks, yeah. Yeah, and it, so it was kind of like healing music for me, and um one of the uh, uh, people that really, that whose music really was uh, like, you know, just felt so good to listen to was uh, this musician named Sonny Rollins. And um, basically he's, he's still alive. And, but at the time, uh, this is before social media and stuff. He, I wanted to thank him. This was towards the end of my really hard time. And, and I wrote him a message on his website guest book. And uh, I was shocked that he actually responded. And I still have his response framed and hanging above my desk. It's, uh, dear Joe, your comments were appreciated. We all have to use adversity as an opportunity to find a way. So keep a strong mind throughout this short existence. Your examples give us all hope as all of us here in this life have to struggle. And that's when I really like, you know, looking back on it now, I'm really grateful for a couple of things. One that it really was an opportunity to strengthen my mind. I mean, I guess like, you know, one of the really hard things about going through this as an early high schooler is like, and especially during that time was like everyone first, I didn't, I, once I realized not everyone was counting on the bus, I thought I'm the only one dealing with something right now. And I also would hear people use the word OCD. Like it was nothing like, you know, uh, uh, even today I, I'm a little oh, OCD yeah. about this. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, so I, but then, you know, as you get a little older and, you know, I remember like, you know, uh, going on dates and like by the third date, everyone tells their stuff. And so it, I realized that uh, I wasn't the only one going through something at that time. 
Um, everyone's got stuff. It's all different. Um, and I'm grateful that I, and that this was an opportunity to strengthen my mind and myself, and it did. But I'm grateful that I got to experience it now, now looking back on it, I'm grateful that I got to experience it at a young age because I learned a lot that's helped with other things in my life. And I'm also grateful that the medicine didn't work because I had to learn this stuff. <laughs> like it kind of forced um, you. And I also hear what you're saying, sort of it brings me back to like that feeling of like, you know, I always say it's like anxiety is in some way like being between two boulders. It's like obsessing over a past that you can't change and so mm-hmm. worried about the future and like future tripping. In both of those scenarios, you aren't present. Totally. Yeah. And you know, the and other thing I've realized about anxiety over the years is because, you know, being in the music business, it's like a lot of highs, really high highs and low lows. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, the, I've realized that, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so you might, you can feel free to push back, but I've realized Neither that. Neither am I. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, well mm-hmm. more than, you're more of a doctor than I am. But to me, I realized that excitement and anxiety are the same feeling, just with a different context. Like, <laughs> You know, you're excited. It's the same. You know, to me, it's after a while, like I would, you know, have some great experience with a hero of mine or something. I'd be excited for like four days. All I wanted was the feeling to go away. Kind of like anxiety. It's the same feeling. It's just with mm. a different, a different context. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Mm. I love that. Um, what else did I want to ask you? Oh, so tell me a little bit about starting behavior therapy and like mm. what worked, what didn't work. So much of therapy is trial and error. So what was helpful mm. for you? Well, uh, I remember I, I had a great uh, doctor, and so basically, she really she really learned my routine before we started it. She knew everything about my day, and then she would come over and basically, you know, just mess up my routine. Um, the way I kind of see it is like if you're afraid of heights, you're just gonna go to the top of the tall building until you're not afraid of it anymore. So, so she literally came into your house, y'all went through your routines, and she would mess things up. Like she would come over and say. You know, she would be there when I woke up, not every day, but like many days, like I think it was like two or three days a week or something like that. And she would say like, all right, uh, all right, uh, today, no shower or like, you know, she knew I spent a lot of time in the shower or like today, take a shower, but I'm have I'm taking your shampoo, things like that. Uh, and she didn't say she it. She would disrupt. Yeah, she would disrupt you on purpose. Totally. And it was, you know, I think something that was it, it, it took a long time, uh, especially learning how to like rewalk basically because I counted on my steps but something that was really helpful for me was realizing uh, uh, that say something say like for example she told me not to use shampoo in the shower today and that would really bother me for a long time that day but then a week later I would try I would ask myself what was the thing that bothered you so much last week and then I couldn't remember and so just it kind of there were like little ways of like thinking about it that resonated with me to know like wait a sec like this is really bothering you right now you're not gonna remember this in a week like little things like that were really really helpful another thing that was really helpful for me and I remember hearing it the whole time I was struggling with OCD but it took it took it took hearing it again at the right time for it to really sink in and there was a lot of that was this is you're not OCD OCD is something that's happening to you Um, like the identity piece Totally. And that's maybe kind of like the the label piece. It's like that's it's freedom. It's the freedom of thinking like I'm not this thing. This thing is mm-hmm. happening to me. I'm working on it. I'm dealing with it. And it can be in flux. It can change. Totally. And I mean, so then once I really realized that, I kind of started to see to, to me. This is how I kind of see my OCD, and it's a kind of a 
when you say it out loud, it sounds kind of bizarre, but but we're on a podcast. So I'm going to say it out loud. Tell us. Say it. Yeah. So to me, I always kind of, after I really, after that bit really sunk in with me, I kind of saw OCD as like, not me, but like a living thing inside of me. And the way you kill a thing is you don't feed it. And so to me, I started to see it like I'm starving this thing. So to me, if I slipped up and had a bad day, then it's just, it grew a little bit today. But the next day it's, you know, it's still, it's still dying. You know, it's, it's yep. progressively, slowly dying. And to me, I, I, I don't see it that I don't have OCD anymore. To me, I just see it as it's so small <laughs> that when it pops up now, I can just say, shut up and it goes away. It's so um, insignificant. Yeah. And so it's really just getting, not, it's kind of like getting control over it. I mean, like a lot of things that, you know, I mean, I could see how someone who has like, you know, uh, substance abuse problem. It's, it's, you know, you just get in control over it. It's 100%. When I do trauma work with clients, I always say our goal is for you to feel in control of it, not for mm. it to feel in control of you. Because when we start this process for everybody, that's how it feels. It feels like the trauma, mm. the anxiety, the OCD, the depression, it is so big in occupying so much time. Mm. The idea is to like make you feel in control. And that's why when we bring in things like music or art, or it's like, okay, it's the 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 empowerment piece. You mm. hold the paintbrush, you get to decide what you want to draw, you put your finger on the keys, you stop, you start when you're ready to start, you end when you it's like the control piece. And that's how we start to like mm. shift those ratios. Mm. And I love the idea of using the metaphor of a plant. It's, I'm always so that's why mm. I love love this podcast because when I bring on every person has a different visual representation or like metaphor that they like to use that just so, makes so much sense. My last mm. guest talked about depression in terms of being in a relationship with it. Like mm. if it was a, a, someone she was dating and I love mm. this idea of like, for you, it's this plant that like sits in your gut or just, and mm. you can either water it and let it grow or you can deprive it and let it die. Love that. Mm. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because I feel like there's all these phrases we hear. We have to let them like see what resonates with us. And it's the same with like music, especially teaching like improvisational music. I teach a lot of people and I'll say, you know, this is here's a phrase that this is this is how I, you know, figured out how to connect with this. You might not, but you're gonna the more you practice this, something you'll find your own thing to connect to this somehow. Um, yeah, and it's I mean, I mean, especially like in the arts, like there aren't many people who are successful in the arts who don't have some sort of overcoming something story. I mean, 100%. How many, I mean, we probably, there are not many people whose art we'd really want to pay attention to without that. You know? <laughs> that's, yeah. That's why it's like, that's why I love the work that I do. Cause it's, it's, and I, and I love your story because your story, it's such a great example of like, take, I, I just love anything. I'm a woman of dichotomies and I love just like mm. debating and ideas. So when I love when I think one thing and someone can like bring me over to the other side. Mm. And I feel like that's so much of the work that I do is like people come in just defined by something or so consumed by something. Mm. And I'm like, ah, stay with me. I'm going to pull mm. you to the other side. How long it takes is different for everybody. What works different for everybody. Mm -hmm. But if you're consistent and you are patient with the rewiring process, which I feel like is exactly kind of what you're talking about with the therapist coming over and disrupting you. I mean, she is rewiring and, and holy shit, like to, I love how you say like, I had to re, I had to learn how to walk again because I was really counting good. my step. Yeah. Like that's so powerful. The idea of how consuming that is. Mm. One of the things that I offer to clients is like, okay, all this time that you're consumed managing this thing, mm. if we weren't, what would you do with that time? 
totally. Like imagine yeah. a world where like you had all this freedom to do mm. amazing things and just letting go of those chains. It's that's why I love mm. the work that I do because I'm like giving them a new life. So totally. That's, that's and I mean, I see a lot like in the music world. Not in the music. There's so many similarities. Like you know, we're talking about resiliency, and it really comes out of necessity. You know, I get in. I, I, I do a lot of things in the music world, and one of them is I run a cultural series and I have to raise money. And I have a lot of uh, uh, pressure on me to do innovative things. The word innovation, you know, I get in a lot of arguments with people because they say, you know, if you can do something innovative in the next two months, I can give you this amount of money. And to me, looking at innovation, you know, uh, it's never, the people who innovate are not people who say, I, I want to innovate. My dream is to be an innovator. It's usually a failed imitation or just wanting to do something good. And, you know, it's it's just so much in all these worlds come out of like trial and error. I, trial and error. And I have to, and necessity, you know. Totally. Uh, how can I move forward if I don't do these things? It's not. If I don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, 100%. it's a fascinating thing. <laughs> Anything, Joe, that you would like to, that I didn't ask that I should have, that you'd like people to know about OCD? Um, well, I guess like, you know, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's not, not that you didn't ask. There's just so much to the subject, totally. you know? Yeah. It's, you know, I go back and f- people often ask me like, how do you feel about OCD uh, being used as such like a pop culture term? you know, and being used wrongly. And I go back and forth. Sometimes it's really annoying. And sometimes it's kind of, uh, it it has the potential to be a good thing. I'll say like, you know, I remember meeting people and, you know, as I said, on everyone's third date, they tell you their stuff, basically. Not everyone's, but I had that experience a bit, you know, and and there were some times I'd heard of, people would share the things they were dealing with that I never heard of the thing. And so to me, it's, you know, I mean, it is bad that, it's used the wrong way, but it also is, you know, hopefully people will take the time to look up what this Educate thing is. themselves. Because when I had met people who were dealing with things that others hadn't heard of, in a, long, in a way, they, they seemed even more lonely. Because uh, it was like, not only did, you know, when I told them I had OCD, they knew what that was. When they told me, not only were they dealing with that thing, but they would have to explain it to me. And I think that was, you know, I, I just... There was a lot to be, you know, having those experiences, there's a lot to be thankful for. Totally. Like it just, yeah. And it makes me think of just like human connection. Cause I always offer that, like, if we are humans and as a species, we Mm -hmm. rely on one another. If you're bored and you're put in a corner, no one talks to you, no one feeds you, like you will die. Mm -hmm. So I feel like Mm -hmm. when we talk about the isolation and the loneliness of something like OCD or just any mental health disorder ever. And that's why I say Mm -hmm. like, honestly, the therapeutic relationship, even if if I am the only person that they are seeing that week, at least they saw somebody and had like one Mm -hmm. spark of human connection because that can change everything. So I think Mm. when we like, if we can push ourselves to kind of open up and even if that's the third date or like once there's sort of this mutual exchange of, you know, are the things we're struggling with or the weirdness, the connection and just being seen by someone else or heard or listened to is everything. Mm. Totally. Can I ask you a question? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think, cause it has been like a long time since I've, uh, you know, really been having a really hard time with this and the way I used to, be told that OCD was, and I'm just curious if it still is, and is, you know, I would say just like people who have Tourette's cannot resist shouting the things that come to mind or whatever, that's the same, it's the same thing with those. We cannot not, is that, would you say that's an accurate way of? I have to be, 
Yeah, yeah. No, I have to be honest with you. So I, I like, I say I specialize in anxiety and that's mainly in response to trauma. So like, mm. because I specialize in trauma, which is super relative, right? Like I am mm. never, I'm not interested. I'm interested in the event because we explore what actually happened, but I'm not interested in the event itself in the sense that it has to be something specific to register mm. as trauma because mm. I specialize in trauma. I, what comes from that experience is often in the realm of depression and anxiety, usually both. Mm. If I find that a client is, and sometimes it's inter like when you talk about the normalized piece, I have plenty of clients that come in for a consultation and never mention any kind of the, the compulsions or the obsessions, they never come up. And then mm. we do the intake and they also don't really come up or mm. because they're so normalized for them. Then we mm. meet one, two, three times. And then all of a sudden they, and sometimes it's fleeting. It's just sort of mm. like. I'll ask about like, what's a typical day like for you? Like the, sometimes that's how it comes out. And then mm. they'll start to kind of mention these things that actually are like registers like rituals or compulsions or obsessions. And then I see it a lot with anxiety work. I see it a lot with eating disorder work, a lot with substance mm. use. And if that comes up, I like to bring in a behavioral therapist or a therapist that specializes in OCD because it's not my like deeper specialty if that makes mm, sense. And totally. when, I, when I take a client on, I always tell them that my, I am well aware of what's in my wheelhouse and two mm. things that are not are going to be in the OCD realm, eating disorder realm and substance use realm. I have a, I can treat if it's not the primary goal of treatment and mm. it's more secondary or more supportive work, depending on mm. where they are in recovery, I can support that. But depending on where they are in recovery, if they have to be open to bringing in and figuring out like a well-rounded plan, the psychiatry piece, the behavioral therapist piece, the nutritionist piece. And then I typically focus on the trauma. Mm, so I'm not, does that make sense? So I'm not the perfect totally. person to answer that because yeah. it's not my specialty. And I'm really glad that you asked that, Joe, because from my perspective, it is really important that when we can honestly like label something as so specific, mm. least input for most output is going to bring in a therapist that specializes in that thing. So for mm. me, that thing is trauma. And then sometimes I kind of bring in other therapists to help support. And we mm. do, you know, release of information, continuity of care. We're, we're communicating with one another. And that is like the most effective work. Mm. That's, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Does that answer you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why I was, totally. I thought it was really cool when you said that your behavior, and I know this is true about beha some behavior therapists, well, literally it's exposure therapy or it's coming mm. to your home and in a really intimate active form of therapy. I am mm -hmm. not, I, I, I see my clients in person in my office and I, I do virtual work, but I always mm. prefer, I say, I'm like a woman of energy. I always prefer to see them. But to me, so interesting with the OCD piece is sometimes it doesn't come up until later. And that mm. speaks to the normalization of the rituals and compulsions themselves, because mm. people don't, even in adulthood, people don't see them as different. And right. if anything, well, often it re it makes them feel good. So they don't, uh, maybe they don't share them with me too, because it makes them feel like the sense of relief or it actually like, they don't want to give it up. Well, I get, I mean, that's like the, I have an uncle who I think is the most obsessive compulsive person I know, but he loves his life. Like he really does. Like he goes to the gym maybe three times a day and he does not want to change that. He does not see it as a problem. It actually, he loves his life. So, I mean, that's like the, the tricky thing with the word disorder. Like people would say that that's, he's got a problem, but he really does not. He loves his life. <laughs> and I think you bring up such a good point. And that's why mental health to me is like, it's so unique for every individual. Yes, criteria can be helpful, but I think it's just so important to kind of look at the individual. And a lot of people, you know, for example, uh, I think a great example would be like ADHD. So if mm. you have trouble sort of sitting still, 
a lot of people are high functioning with ADHD. They probably tend to gravitate towards a job where they travel a lot or where they don't typically mm. like sit at a desk. So mm. you kind of, there are, there are ways in which you can live your life on top of something, underneath something, skirt around something, or if you, you know, have the privilege or the resources or the financial piece to sort of make it work for you, it can, but we're mm. all different and unique and individual. So it just looks different for everyone. And as a trauma therapist specifically, I always tell clients trauma and PTSD as a diagnosis in the DSM is the most treatable and like healable of mm. all the diagnoses. So meaning in comparison to like schizophrenia or a mood disorder, for example, you have to confront that because your mood mm. every day and making sure that you're stable is crucial to holding a job mm. and these like really basic relationships, these really basic needs. Mm. Trauma and PTSD, because it's so dissociative and in many time, many ways your mind sort of like locks it back and you just don't remember. You can mm. work on top of it. You can stuff it down. You can work around it. Mm. And I totally get it. Who the f who wants to come in and talk about things that we know are horrible, terrible, dysregulating, traumatic, uncomfortable? Like, I get it. Like, I'm like, no one. Mm. So I totally understand how totally. you stuff it down and you work around it. So that's why it's tricky. But I'm like, if you're willing to confront it, we can work on it. And it is the most treatable, but it's of all the diagnoses, it's what people would don't want to work mm. on the most. Wow. Well, can I give you one last thing to, to mess with uh, your listener? Not to mess with, but it's something yeah. for everyone Please to share. figure out. Totally. So to me, I I've, uh, was spending some time with like one of my favorite pianists a few weeks ago. And we both kind of feel that we have a lot in common because we feel like we have a happy sound on the instrument. Like people get happy, which is the way our music sounds. And to I, me... That's how I felt <laughs> about Upside of Down. It's like, oh, to yeah. me, it was the perfect blend of... I say that I, uh, I think in pattern and I see in color. I don't know mm. what that means. It just feels accurate to me. And mm. when I heard your song, Not That You Care, but for me, it's like... No, I care. It's very blue. It's a little yellow and it's a touch of gray. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's because he was, he found out about my OC and, and he was asking me about it because I think, you know, he might have some similar, not you know, just something, you know, things. And uh, I told him that, uh, you know, one of the things that's really messed with me lately as I look back on those days is how I was going through a hard time. I was expressing myself and everything kind of came out sounding happy, <laughs> you know. I mean, there were days when it was definitely not and it was aggressive and dark and whatever. But I think it's interesting that the result of that experience is a very happy sound. And there was something very happy about a lot of my music back then, too. And so him and I were like kind of having this kind of depressing conversation about how happy our music is. And we're like, what is this? And we're trying to figure it out. And we were, you know, you know, we kind of were like, maybe it's like you know, subconsciously, it's how we want things to be. Like, we don't really know. So I'm just leaving that to all the, you know, the doctors and yeah, <laughs> let's figure this out. <laughs> no, I mean, so many, like my mind goes to so many things like overcompensation, survival, mm. like, I don't know, maybe mm. it's your body's way of like, surviving. maybe it's like, I'm not ready to show that part of myself. So I have to filter it. Like I'm kind of filtering it coming out that way. And until mm. I like have the supports in place or the healing that needs to take place, that it's like the mask that we wear. Mm. I don't know. That's, that's yeah. That's it. Well, maybe I'll just share a little bit about Upside It Out, and then we're then yes, I, please. Yeah, because that's Tell you know I think yeah. this 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 might be my subconscious hope coming out a little bit for me. Mm -hmm. Upside It Down was a song I wrote in like April 2019. Just played it at all my gigs and made stupid jokes about how I didn't have a title. And uh, anyway, uh, it wasn't. Oh, wait, until how did you I, come up with Upside It Down? The title. Was, well, it's uh, so basically the April title of 20, the album, but also the is uh, that right? It's the title of the album and the title of the song. 
Yeah, oh, so sorry. So I'm talking, I mean, I guess I'm really referring to the song. It kind of was a song I would kind of play at all my performances and stuff and, you know, play it and make a joke about how uh, there's no title. So it was, you know, stupid joke. But <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't April 2020. was when all my gigs had been canceled, you know, just COVID and everything. And, and I had more opportunity than ever uh, to spend a time time than ever to spend at the piano, but I had nothing to prepare for. So kind of like OCD when I said I want to make this meaningful this experience meaningful what's well, funny got to ask like, myself, well i'm oh, just gonna say like all of a sudden when you talked about COVID, i was like it's you on the bus oh totally yeah <laughs> so yeah so i was like you know to me i finally uh was like i'm wait i have i, I have nothing to prepare for i have more time than ever to be at the piano what do i want to play and i was like what do you want to play that's that's a a positive way of looking at this so to me that's when the upside of down uh, came to me, and I, I don't think it's just a COVID theme. I think that's like, that's like me. I, something bad happens, and I want to make it turn it into something good. <laughs> Try. And, yeah, and I love that Joe too, because like I, I imagine when we talk about like resilience, is it a gene? I mean, it's like nurture nature, and there's so many complex components coming out of this, and it's possible that like your nature might just be kind of positive, or like you just tend to mm. be a more upside person, and that you know, thinking about personality or these things that we can't mm. always account for it's nurture versus nature it's environment mm. it's you know I, and i don't mean to i don't want to make something more than nothing but even a lot of the i say like trump this is a great example of like not interested in the event is it a capital t lowercase t i mm. find that a lot of clients that i work with like going to college that's a mm. huge transition mm. all of a sudden no one's getting you out of bed you're navigating the substance piece, the new friends piece, mm. you, the, uh, this flood of independence, which looks different for everybody. So mm. I, I just sort of offer this this sort of piece of like, you know, the transition or just one environmental thing on top mm. of the climate of the rituals piece are things already starting to brew. And then mm. we add in your resiliency or maybe having that disposition of, of usually typically being a pretty like upside kind of guy. Maybe mm. that maybe that adds to the frequency or the length of time in which you had to go through treatment. Maybe for someone else, mm. it would be five years. And for you, it was three years. I'm making that up. <laughs> right. But yeah. taking in all those, that's why I say my job is like, I'm, I'm actually horrible at logic, like hate logic mm. and like puzzles, but I am, I'd like to think I'm an expert in putting the emotional puzzle pieces together because the puzzle mm. is all those. It's the personality piece, the environment piece, the, how it fits together. It's almost like mm. doing a puzzle like upside down in a way. And then we flip it over and we're like, oh shit, like that's it. Well, it's like uh, my, one of my mentors in music, he used to say, you have to have technique. <laughs> so you got to be able to play the instrument, but you technique is not the point. <laughs> the point is music. You use your technique to make music. <laughs> so I, I've, to me, I just see so many music similarities. Everything just, you talk absolutely. About. Yeah. And then they're like, we bring in this other piece that to me is like, is in the realm of like spiritual, whatever, which is like intuition. And I always mm. offer that like, anxiety gets in the way of your intuition. It does not mm. allow you to really connect and listen to your intuition. And that is so important because your intuition mm. helps you, helps guide you typically for like some of the biggest decisions. But for me, intuition is something that's really like, we don't want to cloud that. Like we want to, I'm mm. always helping my clients, you know, the better you know yourself, the more you can hone in and your intuition is louder and it's easier to listen to. And anxiety mm -hmm. just like totally gets in the way of that. So like, that's why it's always important to me to make sure that like we have a handle on the anxiety piece so that we can listen to your intuition. When you can listen to your intuition, you can take risks. You can, mm. if you fail, that's okay. You know, you can trust yourself and that plays into like the identity piece, getting to know yourself intuition. Mm. and anxiety just like compromises that up and down. Oh, totally. I mean, all my, all my mentors in the music world and I, and I just, they're like 
musical giants, and they're all very spiritual people. And you know, when I ask them advice, it never is usually the answer is never like practice more. It's always like, you know, relax. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> let it yeah. come. Let it come to you. Like, don't play until it comes. You know, like it's always. You know, and it's not about slow it down doing any substance. It's really like about you know you need to you know you're you when your mind and your body is calm. Yes, and, and like, that's when you should create. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah. So, Joe, I have two questions for you that I ask everybody at the end of our yeah. show. Um, take your time; you can think about it because uh, mm. I know you may not. It might not come to you right away. Uh, mm. So, the first question is: Sorry, hang on. Okay. Um, what artist, if you could choose any artist, what artist would you like to hear delve into their music in this way? So perform, like if you could bring on just like the show, bring on one artist to perform one song and that song you assume reflects some sort of mental health experience or life experience, who would it be? And what song do they play? If you mm. wanted to know more and you wanted them to be interviewed about that song. Well, honestly, it would be uh, my pianist friend, mentor, hero who passed the other day, so it's not possible. But yeah. I've always been curious about that. His name was Ahmad Jamal, and uh, he's, tell us a little bit about him. Ahmad is was he was ninety two. He's kind of uh, created a whole uh, new way of playing the piano. I mean, he's put in the jazz world, but I think he really. I mean, he's his influence has extended everywhere. He's one of the most sampled artists of all time. Wow. Miles Davis said, all of my inspiration comes from Ahmad Jamal. He really looked at the piano as an orchestra, not as an instrument, one instrument, you know, wow. so he uses a lot of dynamics, you know, he kind of modeled it after like a big band and he's, he plays very orchestral, but he also uses a lot of space with, you know, and he's just a fascinating, fascinating guy. Uh, and he's really like my favorite of all time, but he's, he's, a complex guy, and uh, he was, and um, he had a hit song called uh, Poinciana, which uh, highly recommend. It's very, uh, just he has a beautiful feeling in his music. I mean, and uh, I would be super curious to hear him open up a bit about about that. Uh, I love that. In our conversations, there's always been hints of little things, but never Uh, the thing. So I'm just, yeah. So that yeah. that's the guy for me, but I hope everyone Love will that. check him out. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. If you had a magic genie lamp and you had three wishes, what were your three what would your three wishes be and you cannot ask for more wishes? <laughs> that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I would like a little money so I could just do the things I really want to do because the things I want to do are not really like the most profitable things. So it'd be um, nice to just be able to you know, relax a little bit sometimes. You know, you're gonna, you know, so you could. Uh, I, I hate to say that. I know that's not really like you. This is a free. There is no judgment here. This could be anything. First of all, money is freedom, and then second of all, I really appreciate you saying that because as I mean, I'm an artist and an art therapist mm. and a therapist, a lot of different things. I have was an independent artist for a couple of years. Not that that is anything comparable to where you are. You're a musician, but yeah. it is. It blows my mind thinking about the ways in which any kind of art creates joy happiness influences mm. our entire world and culture and yet like even just like for example being a teacher it is not compensated the way that it should be so i'm, I'm with oh. you all right all right yeah no well thanks you know totally. i mean it's yeah it's uh, uh yeah well uh, so that's 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 one uh, yeah, not to mention joe you are like you work for yourself you are your 
thing. So, I mean, like I know you do mm. multiple jobs or a lot of things, but that's a lot of pressure on someone. I am at, I, I run it my is. own business, but like, yeah, when your thing, what, what provides, you know, support for you and your family is your thing. That's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Well, they say to take a, it, yeah, they, they say, and they say to take a gig for two or one or two of three reasons, either for money, you're going to learn something or you're going to have fun. And I would awesome. love to not have to take a gig for the money. I would love to take. Oh. I would love to be able to take the gigs for the other reasons. You yeah. Know? Oh, I love I mean, that. Yeah. Cool. So that, okay. I mean, number two. Number three. One? Number two. Uh, well, I, I guess. I mean, I would love to not have acid reflux. I mean, I would love to be able to eat. You know, more things. Yeah. And not, not always. You know, have a stomachache. Yeah, that would be. Bad. That'd be like. That would be nice. Uh, Joe. Also, <laughs> I'll offer that from in my experience when we talk about like your brain housing your body and physical ways in which your anxiety can manifest. It's very common for my clients to deal with acid reflux, Crohn's, mm. stomach aches, um, IBS. That is a mm. very normal physical diagnosis. If you struggle mm. with anxiety in the really? same way, I, Oh, a hundred percent because think mm. about it, like your body from the anxiety is literally tight all the time. Mm-hmm. And when your body is tight all the time, if it's chronic, meaning mm. oftentimes we're just not even aware of it. And that's why even like body work can be, we get getting your body engaged in the therapeutic work in some way can be really helpful mm. when you're subconsciously or consciously holding your body so tight all the time. It's a physical manifestation of that, which can lead to things like IBS, mm. but you know, that can also, someone who never has anxiety can also experience those things. So they're not, you know, only reserved mm. for that, but it is like just to normalize that for you. I have no idea if it's connected, but like that is a very common thing. That's interesting. Interesting. Well, and I would love to be able to eat terrible things for you and not get a stomach. I mean, I'm just kind of joking. But, you know, I mean, (laughs) I guess like one thing I I look, I mean, this is a weird one, but I, I, uh, I love to read and I hated reading in high school. And uh, I basically just skimmed my way through like half of these amazing books that we, you know, read about, we were supposed to read in school. I wish I didn't do that. Yeah. I mean, I just... You know, I'm kind of going back every once in a while and, you know, uh, seeing how terrible of a student in that regard I was. And now I'm reading the books for the first time and there's just so much to read and to learn. And I wish I had learned so much of it when I was actually supposed to learn it. I mean, (laughs) very cool. I love that. Joe, thank you so much. This was unbelievable. And again, I can't thank you enough for just bringing in your transparency about this, educating us, giving your personal experience. I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. I hope anyone reach out. I'm here to help anyone, really. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Mind of a Song. Please hit subscribe to be the first to listen to future episodes and rate and review us. Be sure to follow us on social media at Mind of a Song Podcast for behind the scenes footage of our episodes and to learn more about the podcast, myself and our guests today. The views, information, or opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the individuals involved and by no means represent absolute facts. Opinions expressed by the host and guests can change at any time. Where guests appear on this podcast, the views of those guests are solely their views and the company does not accept responsibility for them. Such views are the views of guests and not the company. Meg Behrman, PLLC, provides the podcast, including any references, links, or other knowledge resources for information purposes only. They do not provide any medical or professional advice on the podcast. 
Anything said should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. If you take any action or inaction as a result of any of the content you consume on this podcast, this is based solely on your decision and Meg Beerman PLLC cannot be held liable for any of the consequences of such action or inaction. Accessing or using this podcast does not create a therapist-patient relationship between you and Meg Beerman PLLC. Nothing about this podcast is intended to establish a therapist-patient relationship to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.